0: Man, I hope you, under, you uh, heard that challenge that Scott Crouch threw down for your baking. And so, if you are a uh, baker or a, a wives, if you want your husbands to be bakers, sign them up on that little tear-off sheet. That'll be a great surprise. <clears throat> well, it's good to be with you here this morning. Um, we are continuing in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, coming to a rapid close as we move into Matthew chapter seven. And it's good for us to review some of the things that we've talked about because in review it will help us understand the context of really kind of where we're going. And in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of doctrine that we talk about. Uh, It's practical, but last week, for instance, we talked about the awesome and reassuring truth that God is our Father. That's a doctrinal truth. And it issues into the practical truth of not having anxiety. Because our Father is a good and caring Father who feeds the birds, and clothes the grass, we don't need to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear. And so the truth is, Christianity is certainly not less than doctrinal. There are truths that must be believed to be the Christian faith. You jettison certain core essential uh, tenets, and you have a religion, but you do not have Christianity. However, as Scott just mentioned in his introduction, you know, talking about the verse that uh, kind of was the theme at kids' camp, Christianity is not a series of doctrines that is only concerned with head knowledge. It is very much concerned with being very practical, with what we believe about God actually ushering forth into how we live. In that sense, biblical Christianity is among the most practical of religions. Consider here, just by way of review... The way that our faith should instruct our relationships. This morning we'll be in Matthew 7, one, but I'm going to review a couple of things that we've looked at here already. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, in the Beatitudes, we're told that the merciful are blessed and they will be shown mercy. It is a blessing to be merciful, and in demonstrating mercy, we receive mercy. In chapter 5, verse 22, we're told that Hatred is equivalent to murder. In chapter 5, verse 41, we're we're told that instead of vengeance, we're to turn the other cheek, we're to give our outer coat, we're to go the extra mile for others. And then it gets even more serious in chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus tells us that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Now there's no problem that we have with understanding the English language. Any person who can read can read these passages and understand them, but applying them that's something else. In chapter 6, verse 12, in the model prayer, we're told to forgive, we're told to ask for forgiveness as we have forgiven our debtors. The Bible's very concerned, not just about the truths that we believe. Do we believe that God is a trinity? Do we believe that Jesus is the unique, virgin-born Son of God? Yes, those are important. But it's also concerned about living right with others. The Bible calls this righteousness. Righteousness is to permeate our relationships. And when it comes to righteousness, Jesus is very, very clear on this issue. He concludes chapter 5, with this very high bar. Be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we don't write on our tithe cards anymore, you know, whether we brought our Bible or went to Sunday school. I've never seen that as a check mark on um, a tithing envelope. I was perfect this week, just as my Heavenly Father was perfect, because we'd be liars if we said it. Here's the problem. The gospel makes some incredible demands on how we live. If we are going to claim to be followers of the king, members of the kingdom, well, there are certain requirements. There are certain things that should be true of us as followers of the king. And while the demands of the gospel should lead us to a sense of personal inadequacy, who's good enough to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? Not me. The gospel demands should drive us to humility, to personal inadequacy, and drive us to a prayerful dependence upon God. However, frequently, the gospel demands sometimes lead to judgmentalism and hypocrisy. Well, I may not be perfect, but you see what that guy did? He goes to our church. He's a Sunday school teacher. Can you believe that? It happens. Gospel demands can sometimes make us judgmental and hypocritical. And so Jesus addresses this in our passage this morning, and he seeks to help us to see things clearly. Now, the, the challenge this morning for me is we'll be talking about um, what is now the favorite Bible verse in the United States. You know what that is? It's not, you know, Tim Tebow, John 3, 16, written on the cheeks. Uh, that was for a previous generation. But Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, is the verse that is on the lips of people that have no idea what the Bible says outside of that one verse. And so this morning, we have to really listen very carefully to what Jesus is going to tell us in verses 1 through 6 because we have to understand what he's saying in context. And it's a little bit of a challenge. We'll begin with our first point, and it's this, that we have a convoluted, view of God we have a convoluted view of God listen to verses 1 and 2 he says do not judge so that you won't be judged for with the judgment you use you will be judged and with the measure you use it will be measured to you now last week we had the opportunity to explore the doctrinal truth of God as our father that's an that's an awesome truth that's a comforting truth that's a Reassuring truth This week with the beginning of chapter 7 and verses 1 and 2 We're reminded of an important fact That God is not only father He is also Judge It's It's a package deal You can't have one Without the other If you reject him as father You get him as judge If you reject him as judge You lose him as Father and so he's telling us, be very careful with the judgments and the measurements that you use. And he makes this bold statement in verse 1. He says, do not judge. This word judge can be used in two different ways. Judge or judging can be, u- can be used in the sense of to analyze or to examine Or it can be used for to condemn or to avenge. Now here's the issue. The Bible is here distinguishing between good judgment and bad judgment. The Bible never prohibits examination, discernment, analyzation. He's not saying, when he says do not judge, he's not saying that all manner of judging is absolutely and without question forbidden. No scripture enjoins us to never evaluate, criticize, or discern the actions or teachings of others. The question is the motive behind it. The Bible says it's good for us to count the cost. That's a judgment that is being made. So good judgment is analyzing, examining, discerning, discovering. Bad judgment, as we'll see, is a call for us to not presume to make God's judgment for him. Hey, God, don't worry about John Grantham. I've already condemned him, you know, so that's one less. You know, there's going to be a long line at the end of history. Um, you can skip John, just send him, to, send him to the bad place. I've already taken care of that. And in our judgmentalism, we act in God's place as if we are the final arbiter of what is right And what is wrong? The problem is, God is the judge, not you, not me. And we act judgmentally. Like, hey, God, in case you forget, let me just tell you um, here's the situation with this guy. I've already reckoned it in my heart, so it's true. And so the encouragement here, when he says, don't judge, you won't be judged. With the judgment you use, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured against you. The encouragement here is to not judge harshly, to not judge self-righteously, to not judge without mercy. Because we're reminded, if we're harsh in judgment, that harshness will be turned back upon us. It'll come back to haunt us. So in verse 1, instead of prohibiting all judging, it's really more of a prohibition against overly strict and condemning judgment. Now in verse 2, he says, um, with the judgment you use, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Judgment is a reality that is both personal and theological. And when he says don't judge, this is not not putting Judge Guyton out of work. As a matter of fact, judges are necessary to adjudicate problems that can't be solved personally. And when they get to a certain point, we involve other people. But judgment is, as a matter of fact, something that happens personally and theologically all the time. You know, uh, modern science says that you make a snap decision on whether you will talk to the person in front of you in the grocery line in three tenths of a second, you make a judgment. Does he he or she look like me? Um, does he is he the kind of person I want to converse with, or am I just going to pretend like they're not there and just kind of mind my groceries and kind of stack them on the conveyor belt? You make a judgment on how conversant you're going to be with someone. Judging happens personally, all the time, and so he's encouraging us to be generous in our judgment of others. What he's saying here is, um, hey, listen, if you're if you're if you're a a, a meanie pants in your judgment, that God's going to turn around and use your same spiteful, small-minded, vengeful judgment on you. No, that's not God's character. God is gracious. He is kind. He is loving. He is just. But what he's saying here is if you happen to be rough and tumble in your judgment of others, don't be surprised when the cards are not in your favor if people judge you the same way that you have judged them. Oh, man, he's he's a hard knock character, and he got what he deserved. If you don't give mercy, it's a sad truth, but it'll be really hard for someone to return mercy to you that you have never given mercy to. And so it's saying the judgment, the manner of judgment that you use, can and will be used against you. That's the human condition. So he's telling us here to be as generous with others as we would want them to be with us. This is not a command for us to be blind. Yes, there are bad things that happen. It's not a command to be blind, but it's a plea for generosity. From a theological standpoint, we are judged all the time personally, and we will be judged at the end of time. And this is not saying that God's going to use our same standard against us. No, he's going to use his holy and perfect standard. And our end time judgment... Will, in some manner, be a judgment of how our hearts express themselves in compassion towards others. How do you know if someone understands the gospel message? They have to pass a test. Not a paper test. There's no pencil. There's no writing answers. But there is a test of how you live. If you you believe it in your head and it manifests itself in your heart and your heart overflows with how you react to each other... Every challenge that you face is a test of your godliness. It's a test of your righteousness. And we will be judged. Now, we may not be judged the way that an unbeliever is judged, but our works and the credibility of our profession of faith will be judged. What will make it through? Not the hay and the stubble. It'll be burnt up. The things that are precious, the things that reflect our God will make it through. So his point here. In verses 1 and 2, but talking about judgment and measurements and being careful how you do this is very simply this stop damning but not discerning. Stop damning but not discerning. Surrender your condemnation because ultimately that is God's responsibility. Why is it so important for us to surrender our condemnation? Well, Jesus illustrates that. We do a really bad job playing God because not only do we have a cloudy view of God, uh, a convoluted uh, view of God, we have a cloudy view of self. Look at verses 3 through 5, and this illustrates this cloudy view of self that we have. Why do you look at the speck, look at the sawdust in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the dust out of your eye? And look, there's a log in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. As is frequently the case, when you have a wrong view of God, you will have a wrong view of so much else. Muslims believe in one God, and look how it translates into how they live, into the goals that they want to accomplish. And the same is true for us. When we have a wrong view of God, we'll have a wrong view of ourselves. We'll think that we're we're on God's team, but he's not. And it is a consistent law of life. I I find this um, perhaps one of the abiding tests of spiritual maturity. Um, what, makes, what makes somebody a, a spiritually minded person? It's, it's overcoming this law of life. We consistently undervalue our own sin, while at the same time overvaluing everyone else's sin. Have you ever done that? You go, you know what, I'm alright. I'm pretty good. And you know what? God, you made a good decision when you picked me to be on your team. I'm an all-star. But you know what? That guy, he's a jerk. I don't even know why that church lets him be a member anymore. It's a law of life. My sin? Small, no matter how grievous. Your sin? Huge, no matter how inconsequential. Jesus seeks to overcome the gravity of our assessment of others. By highlighting the lightness of our evaluation of ourselves. Does anybody need to hear that this morning? He's not saying, don't be discerning. He's saying, be consistent. If you're going to evaluate a brother, use that same measure against yourself. Listen, he is calling for judgment. This guy that you're dealing with does have something in his eye, right? There's something in his eye. The problem is you have something much bigger in your own. And he just calls for clear sight about who he is and about who we are. There is a temptation to criticize when we have far greater shortcomings in our life. And this tendency translates into a predisposition to pounce on other sin while we pet our own. Oh, yeah, those, those drunkards, those illegal aliens, those homosexuals. There are issues of sin and righteousness involved in every facet of life. But you fool yourself. To think that you have completely and totally overcome the battle against sin in your own life. So don't pounce on other sin while you pet your own. Don't become so sensitive to the sin in others that you become desensitized to the sin in your own life. The Bible illustrates this for us. There was a great king who had everything that he could possibly want. And yet, there was one thing that as he was walking on his roof in the cool of the evening, that he saw, that he desired, and that he wanted. And in David's taking of Bathsheba, it's not just that he broke one rule, he had to break multiple rules to cover up his sin. And he was unrepentant. The man after God's own heart. And after a certain period of time, a godly man by the name of Nathan came and told David a little story and said, King, you have a reputation for justice. You need to hear about what happened to this poor man. This poor man had one sheep, and he treated this sheep as if it was a pet. He raised it, and it slept in the bed with his kids. It was a a sheep that he loved and that he desired and that he nurtured from its birth. And there was a rich man who lived around the corner who had many heads of sheep. He had cattle. He had uh, riches galore. And a friend came to spend the night with him, and he needed to prepare a meal. And you know what he did, O just king? He took the poor man's sheep. David was enraged and said, how can this be? There must be justice. Who is this rich man? To which Nathan replies, thou art the man. You've got a harem of wives, King David. And yet you kill Uriah to cover up your sin with his wife so that you could take her for your own. You see, if it was the story of a man, rich man and his sheep, it was really easy to get fired up about, who is this man? Let's track him down and lynch him. And it's really easy to cover up your sin and to gloss it over, even if it's immense in its implications. Here's the problem. Do you want to go to an eye doctor who's blind? There's a TV show out. It's a bunch of kind of situation comedy where they go places, and they. it's kind of like a hidden camera show. And they, they have an eye doctor who puts on these, um, uh, you know, they used to call them Coke bottle lens glasses. His eyes look like they're about this big by the time he puts the glasses on. And every time he's trying to do the eye exam on the lady, he's like, he's, he's like not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's just kind of reaching out there. And you can see the tension starting to build, and they're going, how are you going to help me? <laughs> because you, you have issues. You can't see me. You're trying to put something in your hang, in my face and you're hanging it way out here and it's all, it's all a gag. And then finally he reveals, hey, I've got 20-20 vision. I'm not a doctor. You're on a TV show. And they're like, oh, wow, good. Because I'm not, I was not going to ever go to an eye doctor again after this experience. Think about it here for a second. You have sawdust in your eye and you have A man with a timber sticking out of his, giving you advice on how to see clearly? That strike you as just a little odd? It is. How clear is your sight to restore your brother's sight if there's a log in your eye? Now, the implication is, once you've dealt with your own sin, once you've learned how to get the log out of your eye, Once you've learned how to actually get something out of your eye, you're you're now in a position to lovingly confront and actually do something to help someone. Hey, listen, uh, instead of me pouncing on you, uh, let me tell you, I had a log in my eye. Yours is sawdust, I had a log. You know, I learned how to get rid of it. How often in our confrontation are we ugly? Why? Why does grace not even permeate our confrontation? Why can't we say, hey, listen, you know what? The Bible tells me you're a sinner. But just so we can establish some common ground, I am too. If somebody came to you and confronted you like that, would that make it a little easier to swallow some large pills, some difficult medicine? That's what he's saying. It's we are cloudy in our view of self. And ultimately, our third and final point, Is it a wrong view of God and self? Leads to a corrupted view of others. Listen to verses 3 through 5 again in verse 6. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, there's a log in your own Hypocrite, first take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Listen to this verse. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them with their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. That's why verse 6 is at the end. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that one. That's a challenging passage. But I want, I want to ask you a question about verses 3 through 5. How is the guy with sawdust in his eye described? It's okay for you to talk back. That's not just a rhetorical question. It's mentioned several times in the scripture. How is the guy with sawdust in his eye described? Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? How can you say to your Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. You hypocrite, take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, is this talking about a biological family? No, it's not. It's talking about the family of faith. It's talking about a relationship between Christians. And you know what? We would like to think that relationships between Christians are awesome all the time, except for the fact that we're both sinners. So Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples on how to deal with sin in our lives, whether it's sawdust or logs. We have to deal with this. And when we are self-righteous, we are tempted to treat a brother like he is a pagan. We're tempted to treat a brother like he's an unbeliever. Oh, wow, had you been a deacon at this church before, and you're, you did that? Should we be shocked at people's sin? Of all the people in the world, should there be any behavior that someone does that we don't already know about from this book? Sin is a given. We should not be surprised. There, there is no if, there's just a when. When it comes to sin. But the Bible gives us the remedy on how to deal with it. When there is a question. Don't judge a brother harshly. That's what Jesus is saying. Even when we have to give a negative report. A negative evaluation. When we have to say critical things. What are our purposes supposed to be as Christians? They're supposed to be constructive. They're supposed to be helpful. They're supposed to be graceful. They're supposed to be godly, not retributive. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. You don't have to. Besides, your bank account's too small for you to try to repay on God's behalf. But it's at this very point that we see something that is helpful, something that clarifies chapter 7, verse 1 for us. Not all Judgment is ruled out. We are called upon to discern between someone who is a fellow believer and someone who is not. In its simplest terms, in verses 3 through 5, we are encouraged not to treat a brother like he's an unbeliever. But in verse 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them with your feet, turn and tear you to pieces. We are encouraged not to treat an unbeliever like he is a brother. There is a spirit of the age where chapter 7 verse 1, Do not judge so that you won't be judged is now written in bold upon our entire nation. How will you ever share the gospel if you don't make any discernment for who needs to hear it? We can't assume that everybody is okay. And if we do, we should just take this book and toss it away. Because the Bible says that people are lost, spiritually dead, and heading to hell. And it's your job as a Christian to discern between those who already believe it and cherish it and those who need it. We're tempted to treat a brother like a pagan. And we're tempted to treat an unbeliever like he's a brother. We're not to be undiscriminating. And while verse 6 is a very hard statement, Jesus is telling us that we have to recognize that sometimes the time has come for us to offer the gospel to someone else. Jesus gave instruction to to the men who were sent out two by two. That if a town uh, persistently and consistently rejects your offer of the gospel, what are you to do? Shake the dust off your feet. Say, we don't even want the dust of your town on us anymore. We have preached the gospel to you, and we are not accountable anymore. You have rejected it. And so here's the thing that's really strange. Chapter 7, verse 1, when it, is, when it is quoted among the spirit of the age, looks like a complete and total prohibition against all judgment. Yet Jesus is saying what right here? Judge, not condemnatory, but discerningly. We're called to judge between clean and unclean animals. These people have rejected. We, we, we need to recognize that, understand that, and move on. Chapter 7, verse 15, we'll look at this uh, here in the coming weeks. It says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The Bible sets an expectation that believers will be able to tell the difference between true teaching and false teaching. We have a responsibility to judge between those two. He says, beware of false prophets. In our passage here today, we are to confront a brother over sawdust in his eye. We're just not to do it hypocritically. Eventually, in the same gospel, when we get to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives a whole entire set of teaching on how to confront a sinning brother and eventually judge him as an unbeliever if he continues to not repent. Jesus calls for good discernment, not for a hypocritical judgmentalism. And I hope as we look at this passage that there is a particular beauty that emerges. God is concerned about how we live. He's concerned about how your neighbor, your, your brother lives. He's concerned about how we live as a church. He's concerned about how you live. He's concerned about how I live. And there's this Wonderful picture of gracious and loving accountability. You know, I care enough to go to David. And say, this is going to be an awkward conversation, David. But I got to talk to you about this. Listen, I heard a story this week of a, a man who, who confronted someone because it was obvious to them that there was something wrong that was going on confronted another person here in the life of our church and ended up not being true, but praise God for the integrity to, make the question, to take the question directly to the person instead of starting the rumor mill about it. Don't we love each other well enough to correct graciously? And the point in all of this, if we are indeed to be the people that God is calling us to be, for the kind of mutual discipline that the Bible talks about in this passage, where a brother can go to a brother and say, I've been there, I got a. you just got dust, I got a log, and I got it out of my eye. For that kind of mutual discipline to exist, self-discipline must be valued. For mutual discipline to exist, self-discipline must be a... High value. Friend, to be of benefit to fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, the way that God would have you to, we have to walk closely with our King. We have to love His values. We have to pursue His principles. And we have to learn to judge rightly. Judgment is an issue that we deal with every day. I use the example of the grocery store checkout line. You make judgments every day. And we've said that beyond the everydayness of judgment, that there is a time coming where all men, all women, every person on this planet will stand before their creator one day and be judged. The gospel is found in here. Because the one requirement necessary for us to confront and confront well is to admit that we too are sinners, saved only by grace. And if that message is one that is uncommon to you, if you lay your head on your bed tonight, and you wonder what indeed would happen to you if you stood before the Lord, because He will judge rightly. He will judge rightly. Graciously, but his judgment will be true and it will be unavoidable. If you wonder how God would judge you and you'd like to find out what the Bible says about how you can avoid that kind of judgment, I'd encourage you to come right now during our moment of invitation. Perhaps you've written your information down on one of our visitor cards and you'd like a personal visit to talk about this. It is an issue of such great importance that you should not delay. So as the Spirit leads, will you follow? Pray with me, please. God, instruct our hearts. Help our, our minds to, to meditate upon this appropriately. There There is um, food here for mature believers. God, that we should not judge hypocritically. That we should really work hard at personal uh, godliness. That we should... Strive for righteousness in our relationships with one another. But God, there is is medicine for our souls, for those of us that aren't sure if we're believers. God, judgment is coming. And through your gospel, you offer us the remedy, the only remedy for our sin. If we will but confess our sin and acknowledge your son, you promise to save. You promise to transform our lives and to help us to walk according to a new principle of life. God, I pray this morning that you will help us to judge wisely and to choose Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.